Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Mark Cowpersmith, and I'm the associate pastor at The Gathering Place. And before we jump into the message, I just want to tell you how much I miss you all. This COVID situation has been difficult. We get together sometimes on Zoom or we talk on the telephone, but there's nothing like being together. We're in the Jesus series, focusing on our Lord, and the title of this message is Don't Look Back. Before we go there, I'm going to read for you the scripture, which we'll be dealing with today in the totality of the story. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, there is one fundamental call in the kingdom of God, in the Christian life, and that is to follow Jesus. It is a radical decision. How radical is it? How does Jesus describe the extent of this call on our lives? How far does it go? Well, let's read the fine print. We just read the fine print. Now let's examine the fine print. This incident occurs while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has already understood that he is going to die. He's in fact said, I'm going to my death. Verse 51, six verses before what I just read to you, says this. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The Greek literally means he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's not an idiom we would normally use. We would say something like that, uh, something like he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was urgently pressing on towards Jerusalem. There's a sense of real passion, real commitment to what he's doing here. So the writer describes it, Luke describes it as he was resolutely set out for Jerusalem. You see, what we've got to understand before we read what Jesus is saying to these people along the way, we need to understand his mission. He is on a mission to advance the kingdom of God for his father. So much so, he knows he's going to Jerusalem to die, but he has set his face on going to Jerusalem with certainty. His determination is to do God's will. He's on the move. He's pursuing his goal. He's putting one foot in front of the other. He is resolute. Unless we understand the sense of his calling, how resolute he is, we can't understand the strange things he's about to say. What he is saying to these people who appear to seek to follow him sounds harsh unless we understand his whole life is about a central purpose which informs and directs and gives purpose and shape and meaning to his life. So the first man comes up and the man says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now we should note, Jesus didn't call this man. This man came to volunteer himself to Jesus. He's making a clear-cut statement of commitment to follow Jesus, which on the surface of it appears to be quite complete. 
I will follow you wherever you go. Seems to answer the question of commitment, doesn't it? But Jesus is not prepared to settle for this. He must force the man to ask a further question. Jesus, in effect, says, Yes, you'll go where I go, but will you go the way I go? Without any home, no hotel to stay in. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Are you prepared for this kind of camping trip? You see, Jesus is demanding that this follower face the full extent of his decision before he starts. Jesus is looking for what in the legal world, I used to be an attorney, what in the legal world we call informed consent. He doesn't want a consent unless it's within the full, the full understanding of what that commitment means. He knows that there's going to come hardships in his path. In fact, he knows he's on his way to his death. So he's really saying to this man, why start if you may quit when things get hard? This is serious, so let's face it now. Then in verse 59, another man comes up to him. This man is not volunteering himself to Jesus. He's just He sees Jesus on the road and he just comes up to him. And Jesus says, follow me. But the man says, well, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, look, let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting. This is Jesus initiating with the follower, not the follower volunteering himself. Jesus sees a desire and he extends his invitation. See, he not only responds to those who come looking for him, he calls for followers. The man, the man responds with an extremely reasonable request. Can you wait while I go and bury my father? We need to understand this isn't just a, a reasonable request. In this culture, it's a son's duty to bury his father. He is outside of the expectations of his culture if he just wanders off and leaves his father's burial to someone else. It's a matter of duty. But Jesus says, in effect, no, you let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. Now, there's two things Jesus is saying in this, this, this phrase. Let those that are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. He's making two statements, and they're hugely important to our understanding of the Christian life and our understanding of what it is to be called to Jesus. The first thing he's saying is that the kingdom of God, life with him, is the real life. And anyone who is outside of it is dead. Now, that doesn't mean they're physically dead. It means they're spiritually dead. It means they're dead to the kingdom of God around them and all that they can be within it. Whether they're physically alive or physically dead, if they're dead to the kingdom of God, then they're dead. He's saying that although everything that surrounds us seems to be real and important, there's something much realer and much deeper. And he's driving at this. There's a quality of life that is so good that what seems to be important to us before we enter the kingdom of God is not important at all. He's saying that the difference is so great that compared to life in the kingdom of God with him, normal living is just like being dead. He's saying that to get that kingdom life is more important than anything. But he's also saying another thing. 
He's also saying that to participate in that kingdom life requires a decision that is paramount to all other duties and decisions. His point, I think, is this. The life in the kingdom of God with him, following him, cannot be compromised with the life of this world, no matter how reasonable that compromise might seem. You see, the demand for the kingdom of God, the the demand that Jesus is calling for, is for an immediate and total decision. It can't be put off, and nothing must come before it. Now, by, by, by speaking about this issue, can I bury my father? And Jesus says, no, you come and you do the kingdom of God. Is, is he saying that family doesn't matter? No, he's saying that if family comes between you and your call to Jesus and your commitment to Jesus, your family tries to talk you out of that, you have to say no. Now, the point is elaborated even more in the next incident. This is verse 61. Still another came and said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, <laughs> come on. It's going to take him, what, 15 or 20 minutes to say goodbye to his family, give hugs, do all the right things, bless them and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I've got to say goodbye to you now? What's wrong with asking for that? How is that unreasonable? And Jesus says, no, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Is he saying never say goodbye to your family when you're going to go on a mission trip? Is he saying that, that, that family doesn't matter at all? No, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is doing in this statement is he's testing this man's response to reveal to this person what his reluctance to follow really is. He says that to follow him, there must be no conditions. This man wants Jesus to wait. Just wait. Just give me the time to go back and say goodbye to my family. But he's presenting Jesus with a condition. And Jesus says, no, I will not wait. Is Jesus being unreasonable here? No. What he's doing is showing this man the depth of his own heart. He's offending his mind to reveal his heart. See, Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows the hidden things that stand between this man and a total commitment to Jesus. Things that this man has not even realized himself. He doesn't know these hidden obstacles in his own heart. So Jesus makes a demand which is shocking and absolute. Forget your goodbyes. You come now. The man's sense of what is reasonable is offended, but now he must face the true feelings of his heart. He must ask himself this simple question. Will I go even if it means not saying goodbye to my family? Do I want to follow Jesus that badly? Now, Jesus is making a point here for all of us. Jesus is saying this. It takes a certain kind of commitment to live the life I live. And I want you to know about it now. So you can't say I misled you later when things get hard. Jesus knows that only a certain kind of commitment will work for the long haul. It must be whole and complete. A decision to follow with nothing held back. You see, the key word here is fit. He that looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. 
The goal is to be like Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we're following him to be like him. And Jesus had a mission. He was one who served God. A reluctant follower is not equipped for service. That's what the word fit means. The kind of service which the kingdom of God demands can't be done with an attitude of looking back with longing at the life we left behind. Once we enter the kingdom of God, there is no looking back. Every time you look back, your ability to go forward gets decreased until there is no ability to go forward. Jesus is not being harsh. He's just being realistic and honest about what it is to follow him. Let me give you an example from everyday life. And I've seen this altogether too many times, done a lot of marriage counseling in my life. And I've noticed one thing in marriage counseling. If divorce is an option in the beginning, if it's understood, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, we can always quit. Then the parties start holding back a part of themselves. It's as if they take a part of their heart and they put it on the shelf and they say, you know, if this doesn't work out, I've got this part of me for later. I'm protecting a part of myself. Just in case it doesn't work out. But here's the problem. As soon as you start to do this, you take a part of yourself which is essential and important. You put it on the shelf. It's no longer accessible in the marriage counseling situation. You've made it off limits. The counselor can't go there. God can't go there. When this holding back happens, not all of the whole person is involved in the counseling process. And look, to make a marriage work, it takes all of both parties, all from both parties. Marriage is not a 50-50 commitment. Marriage is a 100-100% commitment. Now, it's just like this with the Christian life. When a part of you is not committed to going forward, then slowly the Christian walk turns into the Christian crawl. And the Christian crawl then turns into the Christian sit. And the Christian sit turns into the Christian sleep, which turns into the Christian funeral. Fitness for the Christian life does not mean a perfect commitment, but it does mean a single focused commitment and goal. Now, if you grew up in the church that I grew up in, if you grew up under the law, legalistic interpretation, you would say, well, what Jesus is doing here is presenting these people with a pass-fail test. And he's probably more interested in their failure than he is in their pass. This is not the case. This is not about legalism. This is not about pass-fail. Jesus is not trying to exclude anybody up front. What he is trying to do is to tell us what kind of commitment is necessary in order to survive the temptations to quit that life will bring. And I promise you, as you follow Jesus, life will bring plenty of opportunities to just plain quit. And the solution to that, the antidote to quitting, is to have considered the goal first and signed up for it and said, no, I'm not going to quit. I'm in 150%. Doesn't matter what comes, I'm committed. I'm thinking of the story, I believe it's true history, Christopher Columbus, when he, come, when he came to the New World with his ships, and they landed, he needed a 100% commitment from his crew. 
They'd already suffered losses at sea. It had been a, it a difficult journey. It, can you imagine leaving your country to go across the ocean, not even knowing if it exists? And there's some people, a lot of people that think it's flat and you're going to go off the edge of the world and you're going to fall into whatever and you're going to disappear. And there he is going out there to explore. He knows not what. For a time, he knows not how long it will be. Will the food last? Will the fresh water last? Are we going to die at sea? You know, you read the journal of Christopher Columbus. He believed he was being led by God to find the new world. His faith was in God. He was trusting God to lead him to the new, the new world. It's a great analogy, isn't it? When they got there and they landed, what did he do? He burned the ships. He burned the ships. He said to himself and he said to his men, there is no going back. We're here now. This is our life. This is what we're going to do. He's 100%, 100% in. If you play poker, he went all in. He shoved all his chips to the middle and said, for better or for worse, I'm taking my stand now. Win or lose, I'm 100% committed. Jesus is trying to help us to be 100% committed, just like he was. What kind of commitment does it take to survive the temptations to quit? It takes a decision up front. I'm 150% in with the Lord Jesus Christ. For better or for worse. Very much like a marriage. Well, we're going to stop here and now we're going to have communion. But I want to tell you, there are forces at work that will never stop trying to separate you from your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will last, these forces, they will last throughout your whole life. What are they? We're going to talk about that next Sunday. We'll go into detail on each and every one and how we can overcome each and every one of those forces coming against our commitment to Jesus. But before we do that, next Sunday, we're going to take communion today. We're going to celebrate his commitment to us on the cross. And maybe... I hope and I pray we will restate our commitment to him in our hearts and in our lifestyles. We're now going to take communion together. And let me just uh, put this moment in the context of the story we just looked at. Jesus uh, is on the way to Jerusalem where he's going to face his death. And he's met these people along the way. He's discussed commitment, made it plain. And now we're going to the night before his death what we call the Last Supper. And during the Last Supper, um, he speaks to the disciples about the bread and the wine and what it means. So I'm picking this story up as uh, Paul is explaining it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and onward. And Paul says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body 
and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those are very, very sobering words. I'm going to take a moment to let you go get some wine or grape juice, whatever, and a piece of bread, and we're going to take communion together. So you can pause right now, go get that, and then um, press play once you get back. So, Jesus is making a very sobering statement. He's saying that I want you to remember my sacrifice for you. I want you to keep it in mind. Really, he's underlying his commitment to us. His commitment was so complete and so wholehearted that it cost him his life. And he's asking us to periodically remember that. And he's saying, do it in a manner that does not judge or fail to recognize the body of Christ. And it's interesting, you know, when he's talking about failing to recognize the body of Christ, he's not talking about the bread or the wine. He's talking about other Christians, we the body. That when we come together to to uh, commit or recommit ourselves to the radical decision to follow him, we're really re- recommitting ourselves not merely to following him, but, but to loving one another. That's the body of Christ. And when we say with our mouths and our gestures and our hands and the bread and the wine, that we love him, that we're committed to him, but we don't recognize that that means loving one another. We've missed the whole point. To love him is to love your brothers and sisters. To love your brothers and sisters is an expression of your love to him. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine together, let's remember that we're recommitting ourselves to following him, but it's practical. And the way we express that commitment to him is how we love one another. So let's keep that in mind. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we take and eat this, let's see it this way. We're not just remembering him. We're in faith receiving more of him for what we need in our lives to make that radical commitment to follow him. He doesn't, he doesn't expect that we have no help from him in making this commitment to him. We have his help. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. And that's all we need to keep our singular focus and our commitment in mind. So let's eat this together, remembering that we're receiving from him everything that we need, the sufficiency that we need to carry out our commitment to him. And at the same time, he took the wine and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. What was poured out on the cross through his blood was unconditional forgiveness. And I'm sensing right now in the Holy Spirit that there are many of us who have not forgiven a brother, sister, or a family member, someone in the church. And there's that ought between us. There's something between us that's not right. This is a chance to say, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to be wholeheartedly committed to the best for that person. 
And that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ greatly. So as we drink this, let's remember his blood spilt for us in forgiveness, making forgiveness possible so that we can love and forgive one another. Amen. We'll see you for part two next Sunday.